our small series of the beginning of 1 Peter that we've been looking at over the last three weeks. And as such, tonight we come to our third buttress, as Robin has been saying, our third imperishable. If you remember, two weeks ago, Andy opened up our account looking at the imperishable inheritance. And last week, we looked at the imperishable blood of Christ. And what is always important whenever we come to the Bible, whoever's writing it, is to get into the mindset of the person who's writing and understanding who they are writing to. What is Peter's situation when he is talking into these things, when he's speaking of these things? And helpfully, if you've got one Peter open um, uh, with you and you're church bible is it's 1014 um we see that right at the beginning in verse one peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who are elect exiles so that's where we are peter is talking to those who are in christ who are spread over the whole of the region they are in pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia that's a big area to be dispersed in So this is a a group of believers who were in one place who have now been separated. As Andy was saying, it's a group of people who are really beginning to feel the pinch of suffering and suffering for the gospel with a load more things that are going to come with the rise of Nero in Rome. This is a really key time in the history of the early church. So this is who Peter is talking to and this is the situation that he is speaking into. Let's do a quick recap. Chapter 1, 3 to 4, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is an imperishable inheritance, Peter says, that you are going to receive that looks so different to what you are experiencing now. There is something better to come than the life that you're living. And it's imperishable in that it cannot and it will not be taken away from you. It's not a lie. It's not a pipe dream. It's a living hope, verse 3, of an imperishable future inheritance with him. This, then, is what the exiles are looking forward to. That's how Peter starts. And then a week ago, um, we were looking at the imperishable blood. Verses 17 to 19 of chapter 1. I'm just going to bring this down. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with a fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the, perish, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, Peter is saying to the exiles, you are eligible for this imperishable inheritance because of what Christ has done for you. He died on the cross for you, like a slaughtered lamb, very reminiscent of the Passover that saved the Israelites in Egypt, who were also exiles... And brought them, and now you, into a new land, into a new hope, into a new inheritance. All made possible because of the imperishable blood of Christ that was spent on your behalf. That blood that continues to work through the ages. It does not run out on you. Your sin will not exceed its potency. Your life will not outlive its effects. This, then, is what an exile is looking back to. Your salvation is held for you by what has happened in Christ tightly. 
And that's what we've been looking at together. And it is with all that in mind that we read our passage today. So with all that in mind that we come to 1 Peter 1, 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. It's short. Let's read it together. It is weighty. And when I've read it, we're going to pray. And then we're going to begin. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is good for us. Thank you that it does us good. Lord, we pray that you would bless us now as we read it together, as we listen to it together. Lord, I pray that you would be teaching things that we really need to learn individually and as a church. And may we go away from here feeling like we've really met with Jesus Christ and being more encouraged in our faith, more assured of what you have done for us and more excited to go out of here and tell other people about him. Lord, we pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. The question that I want to open with tonight, as we head into this final part of what is Peter's opening thought to the elect exiles, is, what is an elect exile? What does one look like? Now, a Christian friend of mine who studied music with me would, every week, on a Friday afternoon, listen to the top ten in the charts. Now, for those of you who, like me, don't know what that is... It is a list of the most sold records stroke singles stroke songs of the week, meaning they are therefore, unbelievably in many cases, the most popular songs of that week. Personally, I like having my music saturated in the centuries where the composer has been dead for a few hundred years, but that's just me. However... This is what my friend did, and he did it principally, and I think this is a really good thing to do, so that he was able to get a grasp as a Christian of what was being said in the culture that we live in. And after a few months, I remember going up to him and asking what insights he had gleaned from these uh, popular musical efforts, and he told me that half of the songs he couldn't really understand due to the noise, we we were kindred spirits, and... uh, He then said that those that he could understand were only ever talking about one thing. And I would only give you one guess as to what that one thing would be. That one thing is love. Pretty much every single pop song, rock song, grunge song, I don't know what that is, every single album, they're all pretty much centered around love. Or unrequited love. Or illicit love. Or, you know, love that, I don't know, leads to murder or whatever. It's all about love. Love is seared onto our consciousness as a nation. It's something we deeply desire. It is perhaps the most desirable thing. Look at the dramas you see on the BBC. 
But as I was researching this this week, I found out that a shocking 92% of songs that made the top 10 in 2009 that spoke of love did so in a negative light. Whether it be in the form of rejection, all manner of dangerous sexual undertones and overtones, whether it be in the manner of jealousy, rage, rebellion to unrequited love, suicide on the back of unrequited love, deliberate promiscuity, the joy of seeing people hurt by willful adultery, it's shocking. And the point is, I think, is that we are crying out for love, for these deep, meaningful relationships, but in our heart of hearts as a society, we know it doesn't really exist. These songwriters seem to know that it'll only ever hurt in the end. And so I either hurt someone before they hurt me, or I keep trying again and again with an increasingly joyless naivety and end up damaged. I don't think I'm exaggerating. You know what I'm talking about. What is an elect exile? 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Put that into a pop song. This is what an exile should look like. Someone who loves sincerely. Someone who loves their brothers and sisters earnestly. Now, can you see why these people, why the people of God, why we now are called exiles? Because loving each other sincerely and earnestly is definitively not what the rest of the earth does. It's what we seem to be crying out for, as our pop songs show, but it's not what we're getting. An exile means, doesn't it, that you are living somewhere where you don't really belong. An exile is someone who looks very different to everyone else. An exile is someone who is temporarily residing in a place where the culture around them is not their own and they don't quite fit. This is why the readers here are called exiles, because that is exactly where they are. They're not just physical exiles, they're spiritual exiles. God's people are to be so radically countercultural in the way they love each other that the people around them look on them and say, you're not from around here, are you? And as it was true for the first readers of 1 Peter in their day, it is equally true for us reading this now. You, says Peter, are to look like exiles. This is where we get to our first point of three tonight. You'll see them on your sheets. Because you see, this exilic people, us as God's exilic people, is what we are because we are given a new life marked by love. Now, this is Peter's argument. As exiles, you are promised a future imperishable inheritance, your own home, if you will, that will not fade. Aim for that. You have been redeemed and brought back by Christ's imperishable blood in the past. Look on that in order so that now you will live out a new life that is marked by love. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. In other words, knowing that what we have looked at over the past two weeks is true, go on and live the exilic life of love. I say this often. These people, these churches that Peter is writing to, they are not to sit out life in seclusion, merely waiting for their future inheritance, knowing that Christ has done everything for them. No, they're meant to live it out now. 
They are put to life. And the life they are to live is in stark contrast to the culture around them. This is what an exile looks like. And as we read this passage today, this is what we are told to look like. The question is, do we? Do we really look like exiles? Does Chalmers look like an exilic community? Do we really love each other earnestly from a pure heart, individually, corporately? Do we really love each other sincerely, individually, corporately? Do we look different to the culture around us? Am I actively looking out for people who I know are struggling? Am I giving all of my time and then some when I'm in a conversation or when someone is hurting? Am I always looking over my shoulder for the more important person to speak to? That's not earnest loving, if that's the case. That's glib. Am I loving people sincerely, being honest about my own failings in front of them? It's amazing, isn't it? The facades that we put on sometimes when we come into church on a Sunday or on a Thursday in our small groups or in our CCY groups or at a Sunday club or Sunday afternoon praise. The desire to want people to think of me better than I am is really strong. I want to present to people the Christian life I wish I led and not the one I actually do. I am more bothered about my perception in front of others than I am about being honest about my struggles. I am more concerned with my reputation than I am with reality. That's not loving sincerely. And the problem with all of this, in my attempts to love, when all I am is worried about my mask slipping, is that I'm not really loving anyone, I'm just loving myself. Love each other earnestly. Love each other sincerely. Love like you would wish to be loved. Love when it hurts. Love when you don't have the time. Love when it's disruptive. Love behind each other's backs. Love each other to their faces. Outdo each other with love. That's the kind of love that Peter is describing when he talks of earnestness and sincerity. What else does this exilic life of love look like? Well, Peter gives us more clues. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he bookends this passage with what love looks like. Though instead of showing what it is, um, in this verse, he shows us what a life of love isn't. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's quite, a, it's quite a list, isn't it? It's quite a simple list to a certain extent. It's obvious that these things are not loving. But really, how easy is it for us to fall into these things? Don't be malicious. That's quite a hefty word. It actually means don't wish to do harm to other people. Well, I'm sure we're not actually bothered about doing physical harm to each other necessarily. But do we wish harm on people? That tiny pinprick of glee when someone we don't like fails at something. That's malice. Don't be deceitful. Don't mimic friendliness with the view to get something out of someone. Don't fish for compliments. Don't make friends in order to put out other people, in order to climb the social ladder. Don't be a hypocrite. Be honest about exactly what you're struggling with, sometimes with the appropriate people who will love you and help you. Don't give wisdom to a friend and not live that wisdom out yourself. 
Don't be envious of people, desiring what that person has so much to the point of breakdown in communication between you. Don't be slanderous. Don't talk about someone behind their back. Don't gossip. And the prefix, only for prayer, you understand, doesn't give it license. Flattery also plays into this, doesn't it? Um, Don't praise someone, meaning excessively, when it isn't true in order to be seen as being a nice person. As I was reminded this week, uh, listening to a sermon that Andrew Sachs does on this passage, he says, slander is saying something behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. It's true, isn't it? And guys, if I'm really honest, this is really difficult to preach. And you know me, and I know many of you, and many of you are classed as my closest friends. And I'm ticking all these things as I go in my mind, knowing that I have done all this, I failed in every single area, sometimes publicly, often privately, in front of you. And I have to apologize for that. This is really hard. This is really hard to live out. But it is our command, by your obedience to the truth, do it. Can you imagine what our communities would look like if we did this in Edinburgh? Indeed, if this kind of love was constantly lived, there'd be no music industry or a radically different one. Now there's a thought. And when it does happen, when people do love each other around them well in front of other people, the results are astonishing. I remember um, vividly Liam Golliger, formerly of... Um, Duke Street Baptist in Richmond in London, now in the USA, um, once doing a talk at Cardiff CU, where I went to uni. And uh, he told us that as a student, he walked into a pub one evening with a non-Christian friend of his. And on entering the pub, they noticed that most of the space was taken up by a very large group of people that had sort of dragged all the chairs and tables into the centre in order to chat. And Liam says that it was a motley crew, People of varying dress senses, from the incredibly stylish to the not-so-much. There were varied classes, from the obviously well-to-do to the very poor. A group made up of strapping rugby players, wheelchair users, computer geeks, internationals of all kinds, guys, girls, the very awkward and the highly intelligent. And Liam's friends stopped upon seeing this site and exclaimed, almost without thinking... What a funny group of people. I would never have put all those group of people together in one place, no less a pub where they seem to be getting on really well with each other. Liam was then with glee able to explain to his friend, oh, that's the Christian Union. They don't care who they are, and they don't care who they accept or who they associate with them. This for them is a normal Friday evening. Now, not at all am I saying that this is what every CU looks like, but it should. Those of you who are students here tonight, maybe for the first time, those of you who are in CU leadership here in Edinburgh, this is what your CU should look like. Odd. I feel I helped that over the past five years. (laughs) This is what our church should look like, where there are no dividers, only love. And when we really are loving each other well, it is so obvious. It is so countercultural. It is so odd that it stops someone's friend in his tracks and demands commenting on. This is what the exilic new life of love looks like. 
And as much as it is hard, sometimes very hard to live out, it is not impossible. Why? Because we have been born again by the imperishable word of God. You see, it is not just what we are commanded to do in this new life. It is who we are. Andy Robertson has been reminding me of this all week, and it's been so helpful. It is who we are. This is who this people are. They are made new. They are not just asked to do. They are asked to be. They are not the people they were before because they have been born again. They are now different beings. Read the rest of chapter 1 with me from verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love each other earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So then put away all malice and deceit. We are born again. Born out of the imperishable word of God. Which is what? Which is the good news that was preached to you. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the Christ. This is such important theology. The term born again has awful contemporary connotations, doesn't it? It makes us think of people playing Kumbaya around campfires with guitars or singing Jesus is my sunbeam with Cliff Richard. That's not what is going on here. Being born again means exactly that. We are reborn. We are completely different. We are completely new. We are a new creation. Our previous lives don't count anymore. That is gone. The only thing we look back to, in fact, if you remember from our looking back at 1 Peter, is the imperishable blood of Christ. We are regenerate. We are new. We are born again. And if we are born again, does it not make sense then that we are no longer of this world? We are exiles. You see, Peter wants his readers to know that in the midst of their slowly increasing suffering, that this is actually very normal. Because they're no longer of this world, but of another kingdom, that of the Lord Jesus Christ, that of a new life of love that doesn't quite fit in where they are. They are exiles because they are born again. Same for us too. But as ever, it's not just enough that we are new. How can we be sure that we'll be able to hack this new life? How are we sure that this new life of love, as great as it sounds in theory and as difficult as it sounds in practice, isn't going to crumble around us with our failure? Because, fellow exile, this new life is given through us being born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. The living and abiding word of God. The gospel. The good news the living and active word of God that we are handling this very night is the thing that has sparked new life in the believer. Now, there are two pictures in this passage in 1 Peter, aren't they? Both to do with life. This is the first, the idea that the word of God is an imperishable seed. 
Now, immediately makes us think of plants, that, that tiny speck of a thing that is bursting with the potential of new life. This is how Peter is describing the word of God. Now, Peter himself illustrates what this looks like by quoting Isaiah chapter 40 here. This is in, in verses 24 to 25, when he brings us to plant-like things. So it's a good simile, isn't it? It makes sense. In short, Peter is saying, through Isaiah, that the living word of God is not like the grass that withers and dies. It's not like the flower that falls, but it will remain forever. That makes sense. I think there is something intriguing, however, about the way, why Peter is quoting Isaiah. And I think it's less to do with plants and more to do with Isaiah himself. Let's flip back to that. I think this is necessary. Let's go back to Isaiah. It's Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. It's found on page 599 of your church Bibles. Just have a quick look at this. It's only going to be really quick. The whole passage from Isaiah 40, verse 1, is in most Bibles entitled, Comfort to my people. And that's not a bad heading. Um, Behold, uh, this is what we read in Isaiah 40, verse 1. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, and so on. God is reassuring his people about something. Why? Well, because if you look at the context of Isaiah 40, by looking at the previous chapter, chapter 39, verse 6, We read these words, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. God's people here are going into exile. This is the exile that Isaiah is prophesying into. When the fortress of God, the kingdom of Judah, and the city of Jerusalem, along with its temple, is laid waste, and the people of God are carried off into a pagan land. And look at what happens here. Everything that is physical is gone. All that is in your house, Judah, that which your fathers have stored up, nothing is left. What is physical and man-made is gone in a moment. It does not last. And what does God allow Isaiah to do? He allows Isaiah to speak comfort. Comfort my people, Isaiah. Let them know that although all flesh is like the grass, verse 6 of chapter 40, and although the flower withers, just like the things that they have stored up and are now gone, the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah is speaking to God's suffering, exilic people. Isaiah is telling this people that although everything physical they have is taken away, the greatest comfort is knowing that God's word, therefore God's covenant promise to sustain his people for all time, will never die. That will last forever. It's their ultimate assurance. And that is why Peter quotes Isaiah 40. He is speaking the same truth, to another exilic community of God who are living with the same suffering in the same pagan, temporary, difficult, foreign land. And note, before we move on from this, that Isaiah and Peter are not just saying that it's the grass and the flowers that wither, but that all flesh is like that. In other words, the word of God is not like any other man or woman. It is not the word of a president or of a religious person or of a queen or of a nomadic wise man or of an intellect or of a society's worldview, as strong and as compelling as they might be. It is the living and abiding word of God. 
like the grass and flowers, like every man, woman, and child, and all of our philosophy, that's gone. That will melt away. The word of God will not. God's word will not fail. It never dies. It cannot undo something it has started. Being born again from this seed will not lead to death. In other words, you cannot lose your being born againness. We are no longer a flesh like people. We are now a word like people. We are a gospel people. We are a new people. We are an exiled people. God's word will achieve what it sets out to do, and that is to make people new, really new, not Apple iPhone new, where it becomes obsolete the moment you walk out of the shop with it. <laughs> Properly new. It may be that you're sitting here tonight and you just don't know Jesus. This might all sound utterly ridiculous. It might sound, to a certain extent, as if it's too good to be true. But I charge you to read this word, the Bible, so that you may really see the Jesus that it talks about, who gives real life. And we're not talking about a life where you're part of a warm, cozy club that meets on a Sunday morning, but part of God's new life, a life guaranteed for an eternity with him who died for you to make it all possible, despite everything that has happened in your past. I challenge you, come to Jesus now. Ask him to give you this new life, which will not perish or fade. I would love to speak to you afterwards about this. Peter exhorts his exiles that their life is secure because of the undying word of God, which has given them their, their life. A life where their past is gone, their future is ready, and their life of love is lived out now. All born out of something that will never fail. But as we come into land tonight... What does this all mean? For those of us who are Christians, what does this all mean practically? Well, this brings us to our last point for the evening. Because as much as this living and abiding and imperishable word of God has started salvation in us and has rebirthed us into this new exilic life, it does not abandon us because our new life is now marked by growth. Let's just read the last few verses of our passage together. Back in 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As many of you know, Joe and I are expecting our first child in a not-too-distant future. In fact, it's scary at how close it's getting, and the amount of stuff we need for this tiny human being is astonishing. There's the cot, the travel cot, and the Moses basket, which is another cot. The nappies, the muslin cloths. I didn't even know what a muslin cloth was until about two weeks ago, and apparently we need thousands of them. There's the buggy, sorry, travel system, which is a euphemism for the most outrageously priced and over-engineered pushchair in history. There's the changing table, the changing bag, the toys, the books, the pillows, so many pillows. The bottles, the car seat, and the car, all these things, I'm told, are fundamental to a good, healthy, growing baby or. However, as helpful as all these things are, there is one thing that trumps every single thing that we've brought, and that is milk. I could buy a house 
for this new baby, with the most high-tech childcare equipment man has made, with the greatest tutors and childminders looking after it constantly. But if we do not give our child milk, it will not grow. And no amount of travel systems, cots, and flashing mobiles is going to help with that. We know that milk is fundamental to a baby's growth, and it is, for a while after birth, the only thing it can take in. Now, this is what Peter is talking about here. Exiles, now that you are born again, like a newborn infant, you must be fed with spiritual milk. It makes sense. You see, God does not leave this exilic community on their own. He does not start off life in them and then abandon them to their own devices. He gives them milk, spiritual milk, milk that will give their young new bodies strength and goodness and stability and capacity and vitality and activity. That is what milk does to a baby. It gives a baby all those things. That is what the word of God gives to us. It does not just start us off and let us go limp and weak. The word of God builds us up, makes us strong, and sends us out. Now, this is the second picture of the imperishable word, isn't it? The first is the seed. The second is the milk. The first shows us how life has started. The second shows us how life continues. And both are found in the same place. The word of God, his Bible, his gospel. That same word that sprouted and began life in the believer is the same word that continues life in the believer. So what does it all mean? Quite simply, read it. Read God's word privately, together. Get to know it. You need it as much as a baby needs milk. You would never dream of depriving a baby milk. Why would you deprive yourselves as newborn infants of the word of God? That's the emphasis that Peter places on God's word. It is vital for your growth in him. Just like the man in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who has not sat in the council of the wicked nor sat in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf never withers. That's what this spiritual milk makes you into. The word of God is fundamental to your growth in Christ and is ultimately fundamental for your life as an exile. And here's the brilliance of Peter's thought process. As we draw to a close, we also come full circle. Because, you see, what is it this imperishable word contains? Not just any word, it is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. In other words, how do we know that there is an imperishable inheritance waiting for us? How is it that we know that Christ's imperishable blood has been spilt for us that makes it all work? Because it is all in here. It is all in the Bible. It's all in God's word. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, that was at one point in your lives spoken over you and embedded into you by the Holy Spirit. The only way we can know all these things is because it is all in one Peter, in his word. And we know that it is true. We know that it is true because of Jesus, God's only son, the perfect man, fully God, come from eternity, stepped into our time, lived died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, witnessed by thousands, accepted by millions, 
all of which was foretold by the prophets like Isaiah long ago in the Old Testament, all backed up by the apostles like Peter in the New Testament, who were eyewitnesses of him, this man, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for you so that you may have new life. It is all here. Everything is in here. We need look no further for our assurances that what Christ did was real, that what Peter tells this exiled community is true. Everything we need is here in his perfect, imperishable word. Everything we need for knowing who Jesus is, what he did, who he claimed to be. Everything we need to know about how to accept him, why we should and what happens when we do. Everything we need for godliness, holiness, and living. Everything we need for repentance, forgiveness, and growth. And it has everything we need in order to be a light to the nations. To be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And to be a radically countercultural, exilic community, unashamedly living out a life of outrageous, sincere, and earnest love in the temporary home that we find ourselves in. This is the word of God. And it is imperishable. You'll notice at the very end of the last verse, there's an if. That you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't think this is as much a condition as I think it is a truism. That is something that is in and of itself obviously true. In this case, Peter is saying, there is no way you get this far by being made new, by being a new creation, wrestling with the struggles of the world, feeding on his word, looking forward to your incredible inheritance, looking back at the remarkable death of Jesus Christ, by not already having tasted and seen that the Lord is worth it, that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. And don't forget who Peter is saying all of this to. People who are really suffering. Sometimes we can't see the Lord's goodness at all in any way, shape or form, whether it's in our hearts or in our brains. Because this new life is just so, so very hard. But the Lord is good. And he is loving you, dear exile, more than you know. Through every single moment of every single painful day, because he has prepared a place for you. An inheritance that is imperishable where there will be no pain because he has died for you, spilling his own imperishable blood for you, all given to you like a seed that has sparked life in you, which cannot be removed, which is constantly strengthening you through the constancy of his spiritual milk, and which is all rested upon the truth of his imperishable word. Preach it to your heart. Let others preach it to you practically by earnestly loving you. Make yourselves preach it to those around you who need to know that all of this in our time of suffering, in a time of exile, waiting for our inheritance, desperately thankful for the cross, and overwhelmingly dependent on the truth of God's words to keep going. I think it's fitting to end with the words of Peter himself. And a little later on when he brings his whole exile exposition to a fitting end in chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much that your word is true. We would be so desperately lost if it wasn't. Lord, thank you that it tells of the incredible story of redemption throughout the whole of the ages, this ancient faith that is relevant to this very day. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us and shed his blood for us so that the wrath of God might be averted from us and so that we may know you fully and properly. Thank you that you do not count our sins against us. Thank you that you have forgiven us fully. And Lord, I pray for all of us as we go through this difficult life of love, Lord, that we would be loving each other well. Help us as Chalmers Church to properly live out this exilic community life where we love each other earnestly and sincerely. Lord, we do worship you. We praise you. Thank you that this is true. We pray that our hearts would have been warmed by meeting with you through your word this evening. We praise you. We give you all the glory in your strong name. Amen.